All right, thanks, Cindy. I too want to hype up the team party at Top Golf. I don't know if Cindy mentioned this detail, but I think over 90 people are signed up right now. So over, excuse me, over 100 people are signed up right now. So it should be a lot of fun. Uh, whether you're really competitive or you just want to hang out with folks, uh, you should you should join uh, us. It'll be it'll be a lot of a lot of fun. Uh, as Cindy mentioned, today we are continuing our mini series through the Book of Luke. We're calling "This Is the Way." As we look at Luke's account of the introduction introduction of Jesus' life, ministry, and teachings. And so we started a few weeks back looking at John the Baptist and how he came to, quote, prepare the way for Jesus. We considered how we need to go to Jesus through the John the Baptist way. Talked about repentance, what that can look like in our lives. Last week, we looked at the temptations of Christ, and we saw how Jesus experienced one of these high of highs, these spiritual highest of high points when he was baptized. The spirit descended on him like a dove. The father broke through heaven in an audible voice saying, this is my son whom I love. This is who I am well pleased in, only to be led by the spirit from that highest of highs into a lowest of lows where he faced temptation and he fought evil itself. And we talked about how we live in a society that understands we wrestle with temptation. We deal with the effects of temptation in our lives, but we don't really talk about it all that much. So we looked at how we might face temptation, how Jesus equips us to face temptation. Well, it's all been leading up to this point, this scriptural text. As Luke gives us the first recorded sermon, according to, to, to his account, of Jesus. This is his first sermon. It's like the Brits call the pride of place. It's like what you put first is of greatest significance, needs a special uh, attention and careful uh, 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 look. So we're going to learn from Jesus' first teaching. And as I was preparing uh, this week for this message, I, it occurred to me that Jesus really comes out the gate like a boss. Uh, my, my kids, who are nine and seven respectively, have learned the concept of a mic drop. Uh, you know, a couple years behind, but that's their age. They're figuring out, and they think it's hilarious. So they're just walking around the house, dropping things after they say stuff, saying, mic drop, and all that. They're even having our ki- our little dog, where, where, you know, take a, pick up a, a toy uh, microphone, and, and when he drops it, hey, Cordy did a mic drop. Jesus comes out the gate like that. It says he gathered in the synagogue. Uh, they would go to synagogue, much like we go to church today. They would sing songs. They would say prayers. The scripture would be read, and if there was a traveling itinerant preacher or rabbi like Jesus was, he would pick the scripture text and, like Jesus did here, preach the sermon. So Jesus chooses this well-known text from Isaiah chapter 61, and he, it, which is about God's Messiah. He reads it. It's a wonderful text, and then eyes are fastened on him. Everybody's waiting for this sermon that this teacher is going to give, and he gives us this. Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. End of sermon. That's it. One liner, which if only I could be so concise. <laughs> Actually, I'm sure a number of you are thinking amen to that. But we are, we are going to unpack these words and understand what they're, what they're saying. Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This promise is about Messiah, he said back then. It's about me. End of sermon. Let us pray. Uh, my dad told me about a time when he was in grad school at Cal of how he had an opportunity to mess with one of his professors. Uh, the way it worked in his seminar classes, this professor would give assignments to uh, a student that they would go off and prepare on a given uh, subject, and then they would come back the following week and give a five to ten minute report on that subject. 
And he noticed that what the professor was doing was just taking whatever that student gave as their report and just for the rest of the hour or hour and a half session would rift off whatever they said. So he, he would never come prepared. He just would use whatever they said. And he was like, I'm going to mess with this dude. And he got an opportunity to do that when he was assigned the topic kairos. Now, kairos is the Greek word for time, or actually I should say a Greek word for time, because there's actually multiple words that translate in our English time. Uh, the one we probably are most familiar with is, is the Greek word chronos, which is more this indefinite, ongoing progression of events. That's, that's what chronos is. But kairos is this word that translates to time, but it means more a critical or opportune moment, a time in which in a, in a blink of an eye, in a, in a moment, everything changes. Everything pivots so for those of you guys who are Marvel fans, think Thanos snap, right? Everything changes around that. Uh, for, for those of you who are more biblical scholars, think Acts 9, Saul on the road to Damascus. This guy who is known as Saul, who became Paul, had an encounter with the risen Lord where in a blink of an eye, actually in a flash of a moment, he went from being a person who, quote, was breathing, breathing out murderous threats towards Christians to after having experienced Jesus there in that moment to becoming a person who would actually give his life telling people about Jesus. That was a kairos moment. Well, here in this text today, Jesus gave a sermon that was a kairos moment. And actually, it's a kairos moment for us today as we consider it ourselves. Here is a sermon, this first pride of place, as Luke saw it, sermon where he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Eight words that changed everything. His sermon was straight up, I am the sermon. You know, my life, my teaching, my words, it's all about me. That's all. That's the sermon. Let us pray. In fact, let's go ahead and pray. No, no, we're going we're gonna to break this down like I said. So Jesus brings us to Kairos moments, moments that because of who he is, what he's done, what he wants to do and is doing in our lives ought to change us for good. So let's pray and then we'll, then we'll jump in. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful text that uh, you, you taught, even, even this one-liner as it was, that you are Messiah, that you came to bring sight for the blind, freedom for the prisoners, uh, to release those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and, and, and the good news of God. Father, in, the, in, a, in a similar way as you did then, Lord, would you, with your Holy Spirit, touch us from your same words then uh, today, that we might be changed uh, the way that, that you want to, us to be changed. Uh, would you please give us your spirit to understand what you have in front of us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Jesus gives this first sermon, and from what we know, it, uh, the, the punchline of it all, uh, if, if we take the entirety of the text that was read, is we know that the crowd ultimately rejects Jesus, right? To the, to the point of taking him out side of the town in order to throw him over a, a cliff, which is basically a prelude in those days to stoning somebody. Uh, but notice first, they actually respond positively to this sermon. Uh, look again at verse 22. It says, all spoke well of him after he shared the sermon and, and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. That's to say this crowd was vibing with his teachings, like they were thinking positively about it. And it's as if they were walking out, uh, on their way walking out from that church service, Jesus said, wait, wait a minute, I, I got one more thing to say to you. In verse 23, he says, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, uh, do here in your hometown what we have heard you do in Capernaum. So here's what we know. Jesus was 
raised in a town called Nazareth, which was, not, was, was known as a town of, of being of no uh, worthy significance. In fact, when Jesus would go about and preach in other towns, uh, other people would say, he's from Nazareth? Like, who, who of any worth comes from, from Nazareth? So he's there in his hometown preaching, even after he's been out and about by this point. Luke hasn't uh, covered other events that happened, which he says in verse 23, for instance, happened in Capernaum where he's doing healings and, and those sorts of things. But what we see, of course, low-hanging fruit is people were really familiar with Jesus here, right? He was raised here. They knew Joseph. They knew Mary. Uh, any of you who grow up in a small town in America? Or any of you even visit a small town? I remember visiting my sister's family in a small town, and it's like everybody knew I was there. It was, it was weird. It was kind of surreal. How much more so would it have been like that back then? Everybody knew Jesus. They were familiar with him. They were vibing with his message. They were thinking positively what, what he was saying, and Jesus knew that's all it was, Jesus knew that they were just thinking, oh, that's nice. And he refused to let it stay there. He refused to let it remain there. He could have just let them walk out of the synagogue that day and just be, oh, that's a nice little thought. Isn't this guy Joseph's son? But instead, he had to bring things to a head, even, by the way, putting his life ultimately in danger. He wouldn't leave it. He had, to, he had to bring it to a head. Here's the first thought we learn when it talks about Kairos-type moments and how God kind of meets us in that space. Jesus doesn't let you remain neutral about himself. He doesn't let you remain neutral. You can go to Jesus, for instance, thinking, oh, he's a nice teacher. What wonderful lessons. What a great historical figure and the like. But if you do that, you're going to him on your terms, not his. Because his terms are, you either accept what I'm saying or you reject what I'm saying. And what he's saying, at least in this text, is, I'm the Savior. I'm the Messiah. As he was quoting this text that everybody would have known was pointing to the Savior of the world, the one who would bring freedom to those in prison and, 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 and oppressed and, and, and sight to the blind, do this in spiritual ways, they would either accept that or reject that. In other places, Jesus would straight up connect the dots further for, for those who were leaning and listening that he was God himself doing this. But you either have to accept him or reject him on those terms. C.S. Lewis, a atheist-turned-Christian author, really wrestled with this. In fact, he wrote about this in one of the books that we hand out for those who are uh, new to your faith or are trying to figure out the faith. Uh, you can stop by our welcome table and ask them about it. It's a book called Mere Christianity. But C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and, and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Uh, the people here were vibing with Jesus' message. They thought positively about it. They heard this little scripture text that, that Jesus was claiming. Oh, the poor hearing the good news? That sounds wonderful. Oh, the oppressed being set free, the prisoners being set free, wonderful. Slight sight to the blind, that sounds good. It's all cute. With a knowing nod, though, and a, and a delighted smile, they kind of ask each other, but hey, isn't this guy Joseph's son? And the answer to that is no, a million times, no. Jesus had just come from the wilderness where he had fought and won 
a victorious battle against evil itself. He came to go on the road to the cross to deliver all people who would receive him from the forgiveness of, for the forgiveness of sins. He came to bring salvation. But you know, the reality of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is if we do understand it, we wrestle with it to an extent of understanding, we will realize that in a way it actually is quite offensive. Because it's saying at its heart, we need outside help. We don't have it all together. We regularly miss the mark. That's offensive. And how many of us like being told that we don't have it together? We're wrong. Any, any spouses want to like admit to that? It's like, yeah, roommates or whatever. It's like when someone especially close to you says, hey, no, that's not right. It's like, man, we usually tend to get upset, maybe defensive, uh, worked up. It, it unsettles us. And settles us. The reality is that's why ultimately when, every, when the pieces all fell, these folks in Nazareth realized, oh my goodness, we, we need to take this dude out and get rid of him. Uh, this is not cool. Uh, this is not what we need. How dare he say this sort of thing? But while on the one hand, the gospel is offensive in a way, it is infinitely more wonderful and good because the gospel is saying that, yes, God knows those things about you and me. He knows our sin. He knows where we miss it. He knows all our shame. And he loves us. And he cares for us. And he sent his son to deliver us, to bring us out of, of the oppression of the weight of sin in our lives, the wrongdoing, to free us, to give us spiritual sight, to see him. And I would just, and this is the Kairos type moment that he gives you and me. Now for those of you who've never received him, this is a Kairos moment of saying, what do you make of him? What will you make of him? In his claims, Jesus and what he came to do for you. Will you receive him or reject him? And then for those of you who are follower, followers of him, he doesn't want to just leave you at that. He wants to continually, regularly bring you to a place where you look to him. You trust him, which we'll unpack here in a little bit through his spirit. He wants to continue to bring us to Kairos-type moments to shape us for good. So we see that Jesus doesn't let us remain neutral about him. What we also see is Jesus wants more than a nominal relationship. Look again at verse 22. It says, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. I was asked a few years back to give a talk, give a message at one of our partner churches a little outside the Atlanta area of Georgia. And from what I understand, that's kind of Bible Belt country. And what I did with this pastor is what I do always when, when I'm ever invited to give a talk somewhere is, hey, can, you know, anything to share, anything I need to know with, about the congregation or whatever before I go. And he said, without skipping a beat, yes, preach the gospel. And I was like, I was really excited about that because I'm like, okay, if there's anything I want to do, I want to preach the gospel. But I was curious. And I said, wait, isn't this the Bible Belt though? Don't, isn't, everybody, isn't everybody Christian there? I mean, you know, within reason. Like, isn't everybody Christian? Like people know? And he said, but that's exactly why you need to preach the gospel. The people come to church, they do the church thing, they probably say their prayers, but what we found is that not all of them, many actually, will do the Christian thing out of tradition or out of name, but really when it comes down to it, they've never actually received Jesus for who he is and what he's done for them. So please, preach the gospel. Think about that. That was a church, it is a church that is preaching the gospel and Bible faithfully week in and week out. In fact, if there is a Bible teacher that I think of in terms of like teaching the Bible faithfully, it's like that dude is like way up on the list and he said, preach the gospel. Jesus could have left these folks in Nazareth, let them just slip out the church doors, if you will, but he couldn't. He wouldn't let them remain there. He, as God the Son, 
together with God the Father, wanted to make it absolutely clear he is uninterested in just a nominal relationship, just one that just is, is a relationship by tradition or, or in name. He wants something so much more than that. He wants an actual personal relationship with you. I grew up and uh, went to school in Berkeley, which to me seems almost like the polar opposite of like the Bible Belt. I don't know for sure, but like, you know, if anything, it's more kind of like the anti-Christian side of things in, in Berkeley. And I used to think from time to time, like, man, this is such a hard place to be a Christian. Berkeley, like, oh man, and have people attack my faith or challenge my faith and all that sort of thing. But I came to realize that actually it was mostly a gift. It was a place where, Berkeley's a place where it's hard to be what I like to call a lukewarm Christian. You have to either live it out, lean into it, or else just kind of like not. And friends, I would just say, it seems to me, I mean, we're not Berkeley, but we're Bay Area. Silicon Valley is similar. Some of you, maybe you just moved to this area and you're thinking, oh man, I don't know how this faith's going to work out here and, you know, how it's going to work out or man, I should, can't wait to go another place or whatever it might be. But actually, I would just encourage you that this might be a wonderful place to actually lean into who God wants you to be and what he calls you into. And that is most clearly a relationship, most profoundly a relationship with himself. He wants you to draw near to him. Here's a way of thinking this. Jesus doesn't want religious followers. Don't get me wrong. He wants you to live a good life and do good things. There's plenty of things that Jesus himself teaches about that in, in, in this regard. But at the heart of it, it's not about that. At the heart of it, it's about he wants a relationship with you, an actual intimate relationship with you, not just going to church on Sunday. Uh, another way you can think about it is he doesn't want to be a part of your life. He wants to be your life, not just you know, interacting with him on, like, say, a Sunday morning or, or just from time to time, but, but just regularly looking to him, trusting him, leaning in on him. He wants more than a nominal relationship, and he wants more than a transactional relationship. Look again at verse 23. Jesus said, you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard you do in Capernaum. So Luke gives, gives us Jesus' first sermon here in Nazareth. And we, again, as I mentioned earlier, know that he has already been around other parts of the Galilee region. Uh, of course, we, we're told here that he's at least been throughout Capernaum. And in verse 14, uh, higher up in our text, says news about Jesus had already spread throughout the whole countryside. So Jesus had been out and about performing miracles. And what Jesus is saying here now to these people who are overly familiar with him, saying, I know what you're getting ready to say to me, or at least thinking, is you have heard that I do miracles, and now you want to get me cranking them out, like I'm some circus boy. You know, I want to, like, I'm going to need to start performing these for you. And Jesus gives them a resounding response of, no, that's not how it works. No, no way. Uh, Jesus doesn't want a transactional relationship. He doesn't want it just to be something that we just go to him and we want something or need something. He wants so much more than that. Uh, Cindy and I have a family member who was one of the first 20 employees at one of the major, major tech companies in the area. And so when they IPO'd, it's like this dude went from rags to riches like overnight. He's doing okay financially. I mean, he's just, he's doing okay. But it was an interesting kind of like, I don't know, social study to kind of watch what happened because I knew him beforehand. And he kind of went, uh, relationally speaking, from this like quirky, personable guy to I want to go ahead and say like almost jaded and like in having a hard time trusting relationships because what happened is when they IPO'd and word got out that he was doing okay, people started all coming up to him, asking him for money, asking him for help, all that sort of stuff to the point of like, it actually got him to the place where he was jaded about relationships and even questioning if 
any relationship is actually genuine. Uh, it was years ago since I had talked to him. Hopefully he's turned a corner, but I, that, that was his response. You could see it kind of affect who he was and how he kind of approached life. So many of us, without even realizing it, probably go to God like these people in Nazareth went to Jesus. Hey, I want to see a miracle. I've seen you do it over there. Right, how about us? Hey, can you do this for me, God? Can, I, I, just, I need you to do something for me. Maybe we'll even make it like, you know, and then I'll do something. Or, Lord, I need you to show up or whatever the case might be. Uh, in my Bible readings this past week, I'm going, I try to read through the Bible in, in a certain time or whatever. It just gets me reading through the whole scriptures. I'm in the prophet of Jeremiah. And towards the middle of, of Jeremiah, King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians are like on the, on, they're, they're outside the walls of Jerusalem getting ready to besiege it. Okay. So this is about the year of 700 uh, uh, BC, and God had been warning them for hundreds of years, that is God's people, that he was going to remove his favor from them if they didn't turn back to him. So for hundreds of years, the people of God, the, the scriptures kind of recount, just turned away from God and just did their own thing. And God, year after year after year, decade after decade, century after century, sent prophets to say, come back to me. In my ways, come back to me. And they just didn't do that. And eventually God started saying, hey, I'm going to let you, I'm going to remove my favor and one of these, you know, many warring nations around you that I've just been protecting you from, I'm going to let take, you know, conquer you. And they wouldn't turn back to him. Well, finally, Nebuchadnezzar's like on their doorstep. And now they go to God through the prophet Jeremiah and say, God, we need you. And man, if you read it with that context in your mind, you see God saying so emotionally, like, I have been telling you for years and years and years, pleading with you to come back to me in my ways and letting you know this is what's going to happen. And you've rejected me all the time. And now you come to me. And now you come to me. Now, what's crazy, because this is God's grace, it's his character, he still says, but it's not going to end there. I'm going to bring you out of exile back and reestablish you as a people, my people. But you can just hear the heartbrokenness of like, no. God does not desire a transactional relationship with you and me. He wants us to seek him. Now, what's incredible also in the scriptures is that it, it, it teaches us that God does want to provide for us in tangible ways. Often when we don't deserve it, frankly, just about always when we don't deserve it. He shows up, provides, and will provide for you in tangible ways. But what he really wants so much more is not a transactional relationship, but an intimate, personal relationship with you and me. A relationship that has us there for him in the bad times and the good. I found that often, and sometimes this is the case for me, I go to him more actually in the bad times than the good. He wants a personal relationship that goes to him when we see his clear working in our lives and also at the times when we are not quite sure if he's working or how he's working. He wants a relationship that's, that's not just transactional. He wants a relationship that's not nominal. And then to really drive home this point to the people of Nazareth, Jesus gives two examples of people from their own scriptures that really did seek God and were able to receive his life in, in, in their life. They had Kairos moments themselves, and they received, to quote Jesus' text earlier, sight for the blind, freedom from imprisonment. He, he, he uses two examples. He talks about the widow at Zarephath in Sidon, and he talks about Naaman, the general of Assyria. So I want to real quickly consider these two, and then we'll close our time together. So first, he gives the example of the widow of Zarephath. You can found this, find this in 1 Kings 17 if you want to look at that later. But this is a woman who encountered God through the prophet Elijah. 
Now, during this time, there was a severe famine, famine that lasted about three years, and it led Elijah out into the wilderness. He was on the run of life uh, for his life. That, that's another story, but he, he stayed very famously by a brook where God provided for him, but eventually that brook dried up, and God came to him and said, hey, I have directed a widow in Zarephath to provide for you, to take care of you, to feed you, so I want you to go there. Now, that was kind of crazy because in those days, that was well outside God's people's territory. It was outside of Israel. Up inside them, way up there, it's modern day Lebanon. But God said, go up there. And Elijah was like, okay, I'll go up there to see this widow, I guess. So he went up there. By the way, the famine was hitting them up there too. It wasn't like the famine wasn't there, but he went up there. He was at the town gate and there came across this widow who was out there collecting uh, sticks for, for, for wood for fire. And he said, hey, uh, do you have any water? Would you please give me some water? And this gal being polite, even though it was in the middle of a, of, a, of a drought, went and headed, started to head towards her house to get him some water. And, and then he stopped her. He said, oh, and also, would you break me some, uh, bake me some bread? And at that point, the, the, the widow was like, you got to be kidding me, man. <laughs> it's like, I'm just going to go get you water. I don't even have that. We're in the middle of a famine, and you want me to bake you some bread? Don't you realize that I'm out here collecting these sticks to cook a little fire to prepare one last meal for myself and my son, and then we're just going to die. Like, that's our situation, and you want me to bake you bread. And Elijah says, oh, yes. Trust God here. Go bake me bread. Break, bake yourself and your son bread. And what you're going to find is that for the rest of this famine, this, this drought, God's going to provide in such that the oil and the flour that you have right now is never going to run out. And that's what God did. And then he gave the other example, Jesus did to these people at Nazareth, of the, of the general of Syria, Naaman. Now already, that's crazy because Naaman, the general, was straight up the enemy of God's people. The Syrians, oh man, they conquered the northern tribes of God's people. And he was literally besieging God's people when all this happened, when he had a Kairos-type moment with God. Uh, this happened with prophet Elisha, but uh, Naaman's story is he had conquered a little bit of, of the northern kingdoms. He took in a slave girl from Israel. How's that for a start? And then uh, he developed a rare form, a skin disease, a leprosy, which at the time was not curable. And, you know, people were dying from that. And I could say a lot more about leprosy. It was a terrible, terrible thing. And the slave girl found out about it and said, hey, you should go to my people. God will provide for you. He'll heal you. And so Naaman's like, all right, I guess I have nothing to lose. So he just took an entourage, just took like tons of wealth, went to the king of Israel and said, hey, I'm here for my healing. Let me, let me give you all this cash or whatever I need to do here, but let me, let me get this healing. I was told that you have a God that can heal me. And the king of Israel was like, whoa, no way. I'm not God. Well, Elisha the prophet heard about that, sent for Naaman. So Naaman went to Elisha. I love this detail in the story. Elisha didn't even go out to see this general, just sent his servants out there to talk to him and said, here's what you need to do. You need to go wash yourself in the river seven times, and then God will heal you. And Naaman had a little bit of trouble there. He wanted to buy this healing. He didn't want to go into the river as a general of his stature. Like, no way. I'm not going to do that. But eventually, long story short, he relented. He's like, all right, I have nothing. I got to do this. I got to do this. And God healed him. Now, what was Jesus' point here? I mean, think about this. It's pretty incredible. He, he must have had at least two points. The first thought, it seems to me, is that, is that Luke was saying Jesus came for everybody and anybody. I mean, that has to be part of what Luke is saying here. He calls out a widow way up in Sidon, who, by the way, those are the type of people that the, the Israelites despised back then. He calls out straight up their enemy, naming the Syrian general. 
This is a theme that Luke comes to over and over again in his account. We've already seen it. We're going to see it again as we make our way through. That Jesus is the Savior of the world. Meaning whoever you are and whatever your past, God loves you and wants you to receive it. And will receive you. That has to be part of what Jesus was saying in this, in using these two people as an example. And the, and the second thought, it seems to me, is he must have been making the statement, and you just need some faith. Because in both their stories, the widows and Naaman, the general, they didn't have great faith. They barely hung on, if that. They kind of were both like, I don't know. Okay, okay, okay. I, you know what? I, I can do this. I, I'll trust. <laughs> I love that because that's, that's more like my faith. And Jesus, obviously, if, 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 you, if you know the story, he very, he very famously at one point said, hey, all you need is a faith the size of a mustard seed. Because it's not really our faith that does it. It's, just, it's our faith that grasps who God is and what he can do and wants to do. So you don't have to have your faith all together. You just have to, God, I don't know all of this. I, I'm, I'm trying to figure this out. I understand some claims of Jesus. I'm getting this. And hey, what, what little I do understand, I, is that enough? I want to I follow you. And, and the answer to that is a resounding, absolutely. And so actually, as we think about these Kairos-type moments, maybe for some of you, it's to receive Jesus. Maybe it's to step over the line. And say, you know what? I, I want to choose to receive you today, God. And for those of you who are followers of his, maybe your Kairos type moment is just paying attention to his working in your life. The spirit actively at work in your life when he does different things to try to draw you towards him or towards what he wants to do in and through your life. Which often, let's be real, we just kind of push away. Or we pretend isn't there. To me, if there's anything that this text is actually about, it's really being wary of becoming overly familiar in our relationship with God, becoming overly settled in our relationship with God. Uh, we need to learn from the, from the people here in Nazareth because sadly, tragically, they rejected Jesus to the point of you know, taking him outside and trying, trying to kill him. And you know, from all that we know of the scriptures and all the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and, and John, we don't, we don't know, the best we can tell, that Jesus ever went back to Nazareth. They had an opportunity. They had the information, but they chose to reject him. And we have an opportunity instead to open our hearts to him. It doesn't take much. It's really coming to him, even in or especially in and through our brokenness. And there, the promise is we'll receive freedom from imprisonment, sight for the spiritually blind and, and, and the oppressed will be set free. Now let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the good news that Jesus came not just to preach, but be. I mean, the, the, the gospel sermon is not, here's what to do. It's, here's who you are and what you have done that we can receive, even with the slightest sliver of faith. Which is to say, we don't deserve your goodness, your love, your care. In the fact that you regularly seek us out, pursue us with your Holy Spirit to either bring us into the faith that we might accept you or to follow you and, and, and bring your life everlasting continually into our lives and through our lives. Father, would you help us not be like the people at Nazareth there and become overly settled in, in our walk with you? Would you help us not to be neutral when you're working in our lives or 
showing us things? Would you help us not to be nominal, just going through the motions? Would you help us not to be transactional, only looking to you for things that we can, Father, would, you look, would we look to you even in our, our brokenness, receiving the love and healing that you, you long to give us? We're so thankful that you don't just leave us where we are, but you pursue us and love us and care for us. We love you, Father. Please help us to be the people that increasingly become like Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.